Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. As we stand together, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would powerfully humble us before you tonight. And so we pray that you would humbly, you would powerfully humble us before your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please do sit down, and uh, as you're sitting down, if you could be turning back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, uh, page 971. And uh, also amongst the pieces of paper you were given on the way in, there's, a, there's an outline of uh, where we're going tonight, so you might find that helpful as well. Let me begin by telling you about a day in the life of Christine the Christian. A bad day, as it happens. Uh, Christine's bad day begins at the breakfast table, where her bleary-eyed teenage daughter is talking about the film she watched with her friends the night before. And uh, as she's speaking, her daughter lets slip that the film had an 18 rating. Christine is furious. We talked about this. What were you thinking of? How could you? And her daughter runs upstairs to her bedroom, shouting and slamming the door so hard that the whole neighbourhood feels the shockwave. Later on at work, a conversation begins, and it's centred around a member of Christine's team who's called Steve, and he's in a civil partnership with someone called Adam. Someone asks Steve... Uh, whether if the gay gay marriage gets passed into law, uh, he will marry Adam. And at one point in the conversation, which includes a number of people, uh, someone turns to Christine and says, you're a Christian, Christine. What do you think? And Christine says nothing. But she shrugs as if to say, whatever. Now, later that evening, Christine is in a, in a meeting with their small group. And uh, when the study is over, they begin chatting about the coming weekend. Uh, and one member of the group is called Roger. And he says that he's thinking of not going to church, uh, as usual, that Sunday evening, just in case it interferes with the beginning of a certain football match. <laughs> anyway, he says, such and such is preaching. He is always too long. And it's way too complicated most of the time, so I won't be missing much. And if he keeps doing those long pauses like he likes to do, it's going to be maddening. (laughs) Now, many things come into Christine's mind at that moment about uh, Roger's casual idolatry, his unwillingness to engage with God's word, and his poor regard for the rest of the church family. But, again, she says nothing. She doesn't want to come across as judgmental. And, to be frank, she doesn't want the hassle. Now, she goes to bed that night. She does regret certain things. She does regret that she lost her temper with her daughter in the morning. Uh, But at least she thinks she avoided a, a difficult situation at work. And she's still friends with Roger. It feels like she's survived the day. You know, she's survived the day. 
But I want to persuade you tonight that that was a bad day. That was a bad day. Tonight we're going to hear Jesus say very clearly that what Christine did that day was inappropriate for one of his disciples. And to see that tonight, it's especially important that we listen to what Jesus says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, as, as what we've called in these weeks Matthew 28 disciples. That is, we, we're imagining that we're reading all the way through to the end of Matthew's Gospel, uh, to the point where Jesus sends his disciples out into the nations to make further disciples. Because it's at that point that the disciples have been fully humbled and served themselves. You see, they were, before that point, people under judgment. But at that point, they have been served for the forgiveness of their sins. They have been brought into God's missionary family and they've been sent out into the world as humbled and and forgiven sinners. And as we read from that perspective, uh, the emphasis that we've seen from Jesus uh, since the beginning of uh, chapter 6 of the Gospel suddenly becomes much more clear. You see, if we're brought fully into God's family through what Jesus has done, then of course we will want to avoid damaging that very, very precious relationship with our Father in heaven. And that is precisely what Jesus has been talking about. He said, don't wreck that relationship. And he said it time and time again. Don't wreck that relationship through being showy, through showy giving or showy prayer or showy fasting. Don't do other things. Don't store up treasure on earth, store it up in heaven. Don't be paralysed by worry. Rather, in each case, nurture and value your relationship with your heavenly Father. And tonight we're going to see Jesus adding to that teaching. This time it's basically summarised like this. Jesus says, don't wreck your relationship with your Father in heaven by playing his role as judge, but rather be humbled and so helpful as a brother or a sister. And we're simply going to look at that in two parts tonight, beginning with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7, where Jesus says, don't wreck that relationship by playing the judge. Don't wreck it by playing the judge. Now, why not? Well, because uh, if you do, you are at risk of condemnation. You are at risk of condemnation and judgment yourself if you play the judge. Jesus says this, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now first let's be clear what Jesus isn't speaking about here. He isn't talking about... Uh, judicial practice in the civil courts, for example, and he's not closing them down. It's very clear in the Bible that God gives governments the authority to exercise justice through the courts. He's not talking about that. Jesus also isn't banning the exercise of church discipline. We know that for sure because later in Matthew's Gospel he gives detailed instruction on how to exercise church discipline. And we can certainly be sure that Jesus isn't discouraging moral discernment. He's not talking about judgment in that sense. Now that's what many people would like Jesus to be saying here, of course, that they can be left alone to get on with whatever they want to do. But Jesus can't be meaning that, can he? He's been spending much of the sermon saying how discerning his followers should be. They should be more morally discerning than those around them, in fact. 
so in the example I began with, uh, it, was, it was wrong for Christian to dodge that, that question. She was asked about, uh, about gay marriage at work. That was an opportunity for her to witness humbly uh, to the truth, as we'll come back to later. So if Jesus doesn't mean us to shut down the courts and he doesn't mean us to stop exercising church discipline and he wants us to be more and not less morally discerning, what does he mean? Well, look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Do not judge, says Jesus, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And let me suggest that that makes sense like this. Do not judge as if you were God your Father, or you too will be judged by him, by God. That is, Jesus is warning us here against condemning others in in such a way that we start playing our Father's role as judge of all the earth, and so denying the gospel which saved us from his condemnation. I hope in some ways that reminds you of some of the things that Jesus has already said, in fact, in the sermon. You might remember back from chapter 5 in, in the Beatitudes, the, the disciple who lives under the blessing of God's mercy, expecting God's mercy, will be a merciful disciple, not a condemning disciple. Uh, we saw it a few, couple of weeks ago in the Lord's Prayer, chapter 6, verse 12, the person who prays for forgiveness should be forgiving, not condemning. Indeed, Jesus warns that if we're not forgiving, we can hardly expect to be forgiven. And what he's saying here in chapter 7 is very similar. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now let me see if I can explain that a little further with, a, with an illustration. When I was a very young Christian, someone explained to me that the way that God has dealt with my wrongdoing is something like this. It's, a, it's as if I find myself in a courtroom where the judge has rightly found me guilty. And there's an enormous fine to pay, and it's all looking pretty gloomy for me. But then the judge takes off his his wig, and he takes off his robes, and he says this. He says, I'm going to pay the fine for you. Uh, What's more, I'm going to adopt you into my family. And that gets the the tension, doesn't it, between God's acting in mercy and God acting in justice keeping those together. And that is indeed something like the amazing thing that God has done for us through Jesus. He's taken the the penalty and condemnation for our sin upon himself and he's even adopted us into his family. But now imagine a twist to that story. Suppose that later in the day when the the court has adjourned, suppose I sneak into the, the locker room and I steal my new father's robes and wig. And then I march back into the courtroom and take his place. Sit down in his seat. Cases are brought before me, and I start judging them. Without mercy, of course. I hand maximum sentences all round, and it's all quite fun for a while, while, actually, wielding that kind of power. It feels quite good. Until, of course, the real judge comes in and sees what I'm doing. And I hope you can see that I've put myself there in really, really big trouble. Don't play the judge like that, says Jesus, or you will be judged. Now, as Jesus says this, he almost certainly has the example of the Pharisees in mind, who seem to have been particularly quick to condemn without mercy those who fail to reach certain 
standards of their own choosing. Later in the Gospel, Jesus says this about them. He says, They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Hypocrites, says Jesus. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Now, I imagine that most of us today don't want to be seen like that. They don't, we don't want to be seen as judgmental Pharisees. So, so perhaps we, we hold back in actually speaking out in condemning others. Nevertheless, I know for myself that we can be class A Pharisees in our thoughts. So a Christian brother slips up in a, some big way, perhaps. And in our thoughts, we simply write him off. We cross him off the list. We might even feel slightly smug as we do so. But be warned, says Jesus. You'll be judged if you play the judge. And like the Pharisees, our condemnation is so often according to some invented standard. Only loosely related to God's standard. So we invent for example, sound patterns of education for for Christian children and then pass judgments on those that don't conform. We invent rules for what we should do with our money in terms of cars or holidays perhaps and pass judgments. We classify jobs and careers into more or less worthy and then pass judgments. But be warned, says Jesus, you'll be judged if you play the judge. What's more, there are, times when, there are times when we do speak out in condemnation. We do actually speak what we're thinking. Uh, for myself, the times I'm most tempted to do this are, are with my children. Now, it's complicated here because I do have a duty of care towards my children to bring them up to live in a godly way. We'll look at how to do that in practice shortly. But I can't use that, I can't use that as an excuse to disobey what Jesus says here. To provoke them in a high-handed and exasperating manner, sort of provoking them to anger by playing God with them. Uh, it's very striking, even this very weekend, I've been struggling with this, I've been really struggling with this, getting frustrated with my children on a number of occasions. But be warned, Jesus says to me, you'll be judged if you play the judge. Now, especially in in examples like that, we may be kidding ourselves here. We may be kidding ourselves that we're saying these things to help people, to keep them godly. But the next three verses in chapter 7 show us that not only does playing the judge put us at risk of judgment ourselves, it also makes us useless when it comes to helping others. Don't play the judge, says Jesus. Be humbled. Be humbled not just to avoid judgment yourself but to be helpful and this is our second main point this evening from verses 3 through to 5 be humbled and so helpful be humbled and so helpful as a brother or as a sister now you can see from verse 3 that the further problem from playing the judge is that our moral discernment is obscured we cannot see clearly Jesus says this, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. 
Now the plank in that image is a, is a word that's used for a huge wooden structural beam. We're talking about a big lump of wood here. Now why is it so large? Well, quite simply because the sin of taking God's place of judge is just so serious. We've already seen that it's a denial of the gospel. It's a blasphemy against the one who has taken our condemnation upon himself in Jesus' death on the cross. It is also, we might add, the fundamental sin. The sin behind every other sin. It's the Genesis 3 sin. It's taking upon ourselves the right to decree the knowledge of good and evil. A person playing God's role as judge is not only putting their own relationship with God in absolute jeopardy, they're also in no position to help anyone else struggling in their relationship with God, uh, perhaps in lesser ways. So for example, imagine for a moment that you are, you're an eye surgeon. Let's call you Mr. Slice. One day a new patient is shown into your consulting room. Good morning, you say. My name is Mr. Slice, and this is Alice, my assistant. Please lie down on the couch, which I think is somewhere over there. There is a long pause. The patient then asks, Is Alice a dog? Yes. Alice is my guide dog, you say. You have a problem with that? But that's what it's like. When a sinner plays the judge, they are like a blind eye surgeon, says Jesus. I mean, think about it. If you did have a speck of dust in your eye, would you choose me to help you get it out if I had 12 foot of Norwegian pine obscuring my vision and getting in the way? But there is a solution. And the solution is there in the next two verses. Be humbled to be helpful. The right thing to do, says Jesus, is this. Look, how can you say to your brother, says Jesus, let me take the speck out of your eye when all, at time, all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrites, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, there's a clear pattern to what Jesus says here, as I try to show you on the handout, whether the problem that's set up in verse 4 is then unraveled in the solution that's outlined in verse 5. And the first thing I want you to notice from that is what lies at the turning point of that pattern, the centre of the pattern. The first step in the solution to that problem, says Jesus, is for us to acknowledge and deal with our hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, you may remember from a few weeks ago, is play-acting. It's all about putting on a mask, pretending to be something that we're not. In this case, in this instance, in this context, pretending to be the righteous judge of all the earth. So the first step is, take your mask off, you hypocrite. Take off your wig we might say, stop playing the judge. And you can start to deal with that massive structural beam that's stuck in your own eye. That is, you can start to be convicted of the huge sin that you've committed by denying the gospel. 
And like much of Jesus' teaching in the sermon, that should once again send us to our knees. It should send us to our knees, and you probably guessed it, you should send us back to the Beatitudes, which we had read for us again earlier on. So flick back, keep a finger in chapter 7, just flick it back a few pages, just to remind yourself of those great promises again. Chapter 5, verses 3 through to 10. Because, of course, we cannot deal with such a sin on our own. We need to be humbled. We need to be humbled to be served by Jesus. As the first of these promises has encouraged us to be, to be poor in spirit, to be mourning, to be desperate, to be meek, to be hungering and thirsting. We need to grab hold of these promises, these amazing promises, clinging with a desperate dependence to Jesus in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. Because we can see even here that it's only once we've done that, once we've been served by him, that we're going to be fit to serve others, uh, acting, as you can see in the, in the later Beatitudes, with mercy, verse 7, and integrity, verse 8. Now turning back to chapter 7 and verse 5. Turning back to chapter 7 and verse 5. Only once we've done that, only once we've dealt with that, will we be able to see clearly to remove the speck from someone's eye, helping them to be humbled before God in a similar fashion. Now I want to emphasise at this point what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying you need to try harder and get yourself absolutely sorted, morally perfect perhaps, before you can help anyone else. We probably do often think that way, that I need to sort myself out first in a particular area of sin before I can help somebody else in it. But I think we'd be in a pretty pickle if that were true, because of course we'd never get there, and then we'd never help anyone. And so instead of being people living under the, under the gracious promises of God, we'd be people utterly burdened by our own failure, unable to help with those struggling around us. So look again at what Jesus is saying. He's saying, stop playing the judge and humble yourself. Then you can help. Then you can help. Now, I think if we were to grasp this, it would be extraordinary, really. It would be a truly liberating for us as a church family. It would revolutionize how we interact together as a church family. It means all sorts of things, doesn't it? It would mean that, it means that I don't have to be perfect, to have a perfect marriage, for example, in, in order to help you in your marriage. It means that I don't have to be 100% sexually pure to help someone struggling uh, with lust. It means that I don't have to have a perfect control of my tongue before I can help someone not to gossip so much. So long as, and this is the key thing, so long as I approach them not as judge, but as a brother or a sister, as a fellow humbled, forgiven sinner, as utterly dependent as they are on the mercy and grace of God. Now, in practice, that will mean at least two things. It will mean, first, 
holding back, holding back until I am in a position to help and serve. I imagine this is perhaps especially important when it comes to parenting. It's no good, really, just jumping in, all guns blazing, the instant something goes wrong. Now look at verse 5 again. You hypocrite, says Jesus. First take the plank out of your own eye. Be humbled first. Then you can serve. Secondly, it's no good assuming that people will know that we know our own sinfulness and our utter dependence on God's mercy. We can't take that for granted. We can't take it as read. We have to make it clear. We have to lay it on thick. How thick? Good King Wenceslas thick. How does good King Wenceslas like his pizzas? You know the answer, of course. He likes them deep and crisp and even. Likewise with our humility. Deep, not thin or superficial. Crisp, honest and sincere. Even. A consistent humility across all situations, not just when it suits us. So let me finish tonight by by going back to those scenarios we began with, to to Christine the Christian and her day, and try to see how her day might have gone a little differently. Suppose instead it went like this. At breakfast, when she finds out about the film, Christine takes a deep breath, knowing that at that moment she is not in the least bit in the right frame of mind to deal with this. She simply asks, can we talk about this later? Can we talk about this when you get back from school? Later on at work, when Christine is asked that question about uh, gay marriage, she pauses to make a silent, desperate prayer for help. And I suppose that the precise words she might use uh, would depend upon the exact circumstances. But she tries to say something like this. She tries to say, to Steve that she doesn't want him to think that because of what she's about to say she thinks that she's a better person than him because in fact she's learnt the hard way that she's not she lays it on with a trowel deep and crisp and even and then she tries to say that while she doesn't have the right to say she doesn't think she she has the right to say what's right or wrong about marriage she believes that God does have that right And so far as she can see in all humility, God says that marriage is like this, defines it like this, between one man and one woman. The conversation stops abruptly. Later in the day, she's told she's likely to face a formal disciplinary procedure. Back at home, she tries to do something similar with her daughter. She talks about her own struggles and failures, both as a teenager and now. She lays it on with a trowel, deep and crisp and even. And then she talks about the film. But still her daughter storms away, slamming her bedroom door. After the Bible study, Christine tries something similar again, while also trying to judge the mood of the situation. So she joins in with joking about the preacher, who, after all, is way too complicated most of the time. And she talks openly about her own struggles in trying to be servant-hearted within the church family and at church gatherings. And she 
then she does ask Roger straight about what matters most. Now, sadly, Roger does think that she's being judgmental. And he says so, and none too nicely. Now, on paper, that seems like a disastrous day, doesn't it? A disastrous day. Christine's job is on the line. Her workplace has become an uncomfortable place to be. Her daughter has been shocked and isn't speaking to her. She's badly fallen out with a brother in her small group. But I want to say, on the basis of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 7, that was a good day. That was a good day. It was a hard day, but it was a good day. And a day like that is not good just because of what it might lead to, that it might lead to some good things. Of course, it might lead to someone at work recognizing Christine's humility and integrity, seeing how unreasonable the reaction was, then perhaps investigating Jesus for themselves, recognizing God spreading God's glory in the world. It might lead to that. It might lead to her daughter seriously reconsidering how unhelpfully influenced she is by her peers. It might lead to Roger changing his attitude about things and about the church family. Indeed, as she's followed Jesus... Christian has acted as best she can to be a light in the world and a help to her daughter and to a Christian brother. But I want to say that even if what she did had no obvious good effects, that was still a good day. It was a good day because it was a good day for Christine's relationship with her Heavenly Father. Throughout that day, Christine has not forgotten her father. At no point in that day has she tried to usurp his place as judge of all the earth. Rather, she has struggled, struggled to keep humble. And she has been moved to help others who are likewise struggling. And it's days like that in this coming week and beyond that Jesus wants us to have. Amen.